You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I'm very thankful for them. Turn to Genesis chapter 9 if you don't mind. We have a... uh, a rather uh, interesting text in front of us today. I also want to say uh, welcome to all of our kids into the service. Uh, the fifth Sunday, we invite our kids to be part of the service, and we're glad you're here. And I know that uh, many of you have some note sheets where you're taking notes. And, uh, well, I've been impressed with some of the things you've shown me at the side door, the things you're writing down. Uh, it helps me a lot, by the way. And, and kids, let me just say, that if I say something up here that doesn't make sense, call me on it. It's okay. You can, you can, hey, side door, you can say, hey, this didn't make sense. I welcome that. I would love for that kind of feedback uh, from you guys because I want to make sure that when I'm teaching that, well, you understand it. So Noah, uh, Noah here in Genesis chapter nine, verse 18, let's pick it up there. Kind of an awkward text this morning, but uh, we we will walk through this and uh, glean what the Lord has for us this morning. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark where Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth was dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father, their, fathers were turned back, their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Father, we pause this morning to say thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, the student ministry that's involved in all aspects of our ministry this morning, from the audiovisual to the online streaming in the back and all the different things that they're involved with, not only today, but, but every day of every week and the investment that our leaders make into them. We just thank you for that. Father, guide us in your word today. And Father, help us to, to see clearly what it is that you want us to understand from this text. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and grace. And Father, I pray that you guide us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. There was a uh, man who complained, and this is what he complained about. Quote, youth today have luxury. They have bad manners contempt for authority, no respect for older people, and talk nonsense when they should be working. Young people do not stand up any longer when adults enter the room. They contradict their parents, and they talk too much in company, and they bring tyranny to their elders, end quote. That's a pretty strong statement. Crazy thing is, I could have read that statement at any period of history and time since the fall, and there will be people in the room who shake their head, mostly adults. The kids will shake their head left to right. The adults will shake their heads up and down. The interesting thing about this quote 
is this quote was made 400 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem by a guy by the name of Socrates. Socrates was a, a great philosopher. And what's interesting about that statement is you could take that statement and basically read it at any point in history to pretty much any culture, and there's going to be people who agree with it because ever since the fall, ever since the fall, there has been tension within the family unit. Tension between husband and wife, tension between the adults, the husband, the wife, the parents towards the kids, and tension from the kids towards the parents. That's just part of the world we live in. The reason we live in that kind of world is because of what we saw in Genesis 3, and we realize that every single child, that infant that you hold in your arms, that, that beautiful gift from God, well, it, it grows up. And eventually we realize, and it comes at different ages, sometimes as early as 10 months, sometimes it holds off to about that 12 to 18 month, but nonetheless, we realize that we have a tyrant in our home, in a small package, who demands everything and, and quite frankly doesn't contribute a whole lot back to the family unit at that point in their life, right? But they demand everything. And if they don't get their way, they let you know it. And so there's those moments in parenting when we step back and go, what in the world is happening here? Well, you shouldn't think that because if you talk to your parents, they'll tell you that you were exactly the same way at exactly the same age. They were all born, well, broken. And it doesn't take long in our life to realize it. Every generation of young people struggle with honoring their parents Parents struggle with, with living out integrity and character in front of their kids. We don't, we don't get it right all the time. We, we're imperfect, just as our kids are imperfect. So here we are in a family unit that God ordained all the way back at the beginning of time that, that a man shall leave his, his, his parents, a, a woman shall leave their parents, they shall become one. They will become a family unit. God has commanded them to go and multiply, be fruitful, have children. And now we have a family unit that, quite frankly, regardless of how much money they have and how much influence they have, is broken. There's an element of dysfunction in every family. And oh my goodness, with the story of Noah today, we have, well, some dysfunction that we've got to, to deal with. Some amount of time has passed between verse 17 and 18. I don't know how long. We're not told. But the fact is, is that by this point, Ham, which is one of Noah's sons, has had children one of those children has at least grown up some. His name is Canaan. Now, if you hear that name Canaan, if, if you've been looking at the Old Testament, if you've been in church any amount of time, if you study the Bible, you might think, okay, does, does this person Canaan have anything to do with the tribe of people called the Canaanites? Yes. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But right here in Genesis 9, we have Noah who, quite frankly, if we've spent any time in church at all, look at Noah with, with great regard, with high regard. Uh, he, he's listed as one of those patriarchs of faith, a man who was righteous, a man who, who obeyed God even when it didn't make sense. He, he builds an ark, and they enter that ark, and they remain in that ark for 370 days. So, so Noah is obedient to God. We found out that Noah was a, a preacher of God, proclaiming the judgment of God coming. So we, so we hold Noah in high regard. But yet, 
within his family unit, within Noah himself, uh, well, there's a tendency towards evil and doing the wrong thing. And what's amazing about what's happening in Genesis 9 as we kind of pull the curtain back and look at it, what's amazing about this is, is that even though God has not given a formal law, in other words, this is way before Moses, this is way before the nation of Israel is at Mount Sinai and God speaks to his people and says, look, this is what I expect of you if you are going to follow me. That's why God gave the law. So we are way before the law. But yet people are responding to one another and to God as though God has already spoken a law into existence. Already within their culture, there's the understanding that, that you're to cover your body, that you're not to, to go out and present yourself in public without clothes on. Makes sense. And that comes as a result of the fall, the shame that came as a result of the fall. But also we find out that there's an automatic uh, understanding within humanity to honor parents and grandparents. It's already there. That there's the understanding that, that built within humanity is this understanding of, of a basic right and wrong, and, and that within that right and wrong, that we are to honor those who are older than us, our parents, grandparents. What we're going to see is that ever since the fall, even to this day, people have fought, they have killed, they have They've lived in a constant struggle between right and wrong. Prior to the flood, God sees the, the incredible evil that, that humanity is doing, and the only option is to destroy everyone except the people who are on that ark. But even after the ark lands on Mount Ararat, even after Noah and his family leave this ark, we have not moved beyond the evil that is in the world and the choices that we make that are often, well, in disobedience to God's plan for our life. You see, I, I read a text like Noah in this story, and I have to wonder, God, why did, you, why did you choose to include this text? So Moses is writing, and it would, have been, it would have been really convenient for Moses to leave this story out because it doesn't paint Noah in a very good light. And there are countless stories all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation where if, if, if these men who wrote the Bible, if they were just writing it to start a religion, it would have been profitable for them to leave some of these stories out, but they didn't. And that's one of the ways we know that the Holy Spirit led Moses to include this story because it's in this story we find out that the same problem that plagues your family unit are the same issues that plagued Noah and his family all those many years ago. Even among those who are put forward as leaders, patriarchs, influential people, this story is about a, a basic, foolish decision that Noah makes. And then the repercussions of that choice and how it flows from Genesis 9 all the way down, even all the way to Joshua going into the promised land. So let's pick it up in verse 18. Moses kind of sets the stage here for us. He says, The sons of Noah went forth from the ark where Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And notice this little parentheses note, Ham was the father of Canaan. That phrase is repeated twice. It's like, it's like Moses wants us to pay attention here as to the meaning of this story and where the focus is. These were the three sons of Noah, and from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. So every one of us, every human being, could trace their lineage back to, yes, Adam and Eve, but ultimately Noah and his family. Because all other human beings 
died in the flood. And the only ones that were left are the ones that came off this ark. So all the nationalities, all of the ethnicities could trace their lineage back to Noah and his family. And then verse 20, we, we get into the story. Noah began to be a man of the soul, and he planted a vineyard. Now, interestingly, when I'm reading commentaries, there's all kinds of speculation as to Noah and what he did before the flood versus after the flood. And a lot of that speculation is not really based in what the text is actually saying. So the idea is, is that, that Noah is planting a vineyard after the flood. But I don't think that's any different than what he was doing prior to the flood. I don't think that anything we see here is anything really radically different than what was happening before the flood in Noah's life and his family. Noah was certainly a, a guy of the field. He, he had to plant and sow crops to feed his family. Uh, he, no doubt part of that prior to the flood was a vineyard. So what we have here is simply Moses describing for us that Noah basically began right over again after the flood with doing what he was doing prior to the flood. But notice verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now today would be a opportune time for me to spend the entire time talking about alcohol and the use of alcohol. I'm not going to do that because the reason I'm not going to do that is because the focus of this text is more about how these sons respond to Noah's decision. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time there. But before we do, we need to talk about this. So, so Noah plants a vineyard. He gathers the grapes. He harvests the grapes. Those grapes, the juice becomes fermented. He begins to drink in excess. He becomes drunk as a result of the fermentation of the grapes that he's sown. And Noah is completely, well, drunk. So I think we need to deal with this a little bit this morning. The idea that the consuming alcohol, it takes over your life. It controls your life. I, I've heard many people down through the years, whether it be addiction to alcohol or something else, they would say, look, I'm in control of this. I can control this when, in fact, they're admitting in that moment that they have no control over it. My grandfather, this is my dad's dad. He, he passed away some years ago. Um, I grew up being in his house on the weekends almost every Saturday and Sunday. They lived right across the road from us. My grandfather was a raging alcoholic for most of my dad's life. He was considered the town drunk. This is the stories my dad has shared with me. And so for most of my dad's life growing up, he grew up in the house of an alcoholic. And my dad has shared just a little bit about what that was like, the, the anger, the violence. Uh, you need to know that my, my dad's side of the family, my grandma and my grandfather, they had 16 children. That might make you drink. I'm not sure, but <laughs> 16 children. There are 10 still living. 10. My dad is the uh, oldest son at 86 years old. So I have so many cousins, I don't even know how many I got anymore. I don't, I've lost track. I don't know. But my grandfather was a raging alcoholic until one day some people from the church, the church that, that my entire side of my dad's family grew up in is just right out the road from where I grew up. And 
my, my uh, family, his side of family is still all part of that church. If you go into the cemetery, you're going to see lots of headstones with the same last name that I have. Some folks come from the church to visit my grandfather because they knew what was going on in the home. My grandfather was a, he worked with his, worked with his hand, and I say hand because my grandfather was missing his right arm. It was a uh, sawmill accident, and he'd worked in furniture his whole life. So there's some folks from the church came to visit my grandfather, and while they were there, and, and my grandfather was sober enough to understand what they were saying, they shared the gospel with him, told him about the judgment that he, he was going to be under if he died and left this world apart from Christ. And my grandfather professed faith in Jesus right there in the homeless, right across from my mom and dad's house, gave his life to Christ right there in that house. And from that moment on, he laid down alcohol, and he never picked it up again, ever. That's a testimony to God's grace. So my dad grew up in that environment. So my dad, as I'm growing up, my dad is known as, and this may be a term you've never heard before. It's a term pretty frequent up where I'm from. Maybe you've heard this, but my dad is what was considered, he's considered to this day a teetotaler. You know what a teetotaler is? A teetotaler is absolutely teetotal, no alcohol in this house ever. So from the moment I was a kid, as small as some of the kids we've got in here today, my dad drilled in me that you do not drink alcohol. You do not, you don't, you don't involve yourself with that. There, was, there has never been a drop of alcohol in my mom and dad's house to this day. And, and being a farmer, dad had a lot of people that he employed. And if he had someone show up to work on the farm that was under the influence, he sent them home and then he'd share the gospel with them when they sobered up. I would like to tell you that my whole life mirrored my dad's, but that's not the case. When I got into my 20s, now remember, I put my faith in Jesus when I was 16. But when I got into my 20s, I, I got connected with a group of guys that seemed to be living large. And part of their living large was partying, and part of the partying was alcohol. So I'd heard my whole life to stay away from it, but there was this curiosity, this rebellion that was still in me, even though I was a follower of Jesus and I knew that I was. I began in a season of my life in my 20s to engage in drinking alcohol, not because I enjoyed drinking it. I thought it was the nastiest stuff on the surface of the planet. But I did it because of peer pressure. I did it because I wanted to fit in. I did it because I wanted to be accepted into this group of people, and, and so I did what they did. I'm not proud of that. My dad would have killed me. I'm sure he knows it, although I worked very hard to keep it from him. He'll know it now if he's watching. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Uh, wow, that'll be an interesting conversation when I go back home. Um, but what never left me during that season in my life, what never left was the conviction that I was doing the wrong thing. It wasn't just because my dad told me. It wasn't just because I knew what the Scripture said. There was a Holy Spirit deep conviction inside of me that said, this is wrong, and God chastised me. He whipped me. He brought me down to the point where I said, no more. And I walked away from it, and I've never, ever went back to it. Now, this morning, I had to make a confession. I first said there's no out there, not any alcohol in my house. And then I had to admit that we do have vodka in our house. Tracy's getting ready to climb under the seat over here, but it's okay. 
uh, we make our own vanilla. So trust me when I tell you, there is no alcohol drinking in our house. But we do have some vodka for making vanilla. Man, it just sounds weird saying this in front of you guys. It just really... <laughs> hey, Ralph, can we edit that part out, brother? Can we... All right, there's 20 bucks coming your way, brother. 20 bucks. All right. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the point here. Alcohol, methamphetamine, Oxycontin, liquor, beer, wine. It takes over your life to where you make some really bad, and I'm going to use the word, kids don't use this word. I don't tell my kids, some really dumb decisions. They're just dumb. The, the, the decision that Noah makes, look at what he does. He, he, he is completely overwhelmed with this alcohol. It is, it is making him make bad decisions. It's decisions that is taking away his inhibitions. It's taking away his clarity. Notice what he does. It says that he lay uncovered in his tent. I'm going to give you the G version this morning. The G version is he's laying in a tent that's probably open, and he doesn't have any clothes on, and he's not covered up. It's just weird. Well, how did we get there? Because he consumed alcohol to to the point where he's drunk and he no longer has the faculties to make good choices. He's passed out. He doesn't have control over his own body. He's doing things that he would never do otherwise. He would never leave his tent open with no clothes on. He would never do that. But yet, with another alcohol in your system, you'll do things that otherwise you wouldn't do, which, which gives us a point here to pause and think about this for just a moment. I will do a sermon at some point in the future. I don't know. Maybe after the first year where I'm going I'm to dive deep in the whole idea of alcohol. Okay, I'll get there. But for this morning, let's focus on drunkenness. The idea that a substance takes a hold of your life to such a degree where you make choices that are foolish. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. I want to show you this. Just a couple of verses in the New Testament to, to kind of set the framework here. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about the use of alcohol, wine, strong drink. But I want to point out what Ephesians chapter 5, and then we'll turn to 1 Peter. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. I want you to notice the contrast that Paul gives to this church. Now, he's speaking to followers of Jesus here, and this is what he says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, that is evil, that is foolish, and it's sinful. Why? You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean by filled? What he means by that is it's not that we need to get more of the Holy Spirit, and there's some days we have less of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's not the point. The moment you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit right then. 100% Holy Spirit. You don't have to clamor to get more of him. What this means is are you yielded to him, obedient to him? And when you consume a lot of alcohol and you become drunk, it now controls your life rather than the Holy Spirit. And that's the point Paul's drawing out here. There is no way you can be yielded to the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Well, when we're yielded to the Holy Spirit, we want to honor God with our mouth, with the words that we use, with the way that we live. We want to live by his standards. We want to live like Christ. We want to be like him. We want to be a good example to others. But when we are filled with alcohol, it's exactly the opposite. We are ashamed to our family by the choices that we're making in the way we're living. We're ashamed to ourselves. We, we, we become ashamed to the God that we say we believe in. And we begin to do things in our life 
that with a clear head we would never do. And listen, it doesn't matter if it's alcohol. Oh, let me, let me hit this one while we're here. Let me just go ahead and swing for the fence. Marijuana use. Can we talk about that for just a moment? Because let me tell you something. It is everywhere. I'm going to Walmart. I smell marijuana. I smell weed. It is everywhere. Listen to me, young people. Hear me clearly. It is no different than being drunk with alcohol. It will consume your life. It will take control of your life, and eventually you'll be living your life for that plant rather than for Christ. It will consume you. The idea that it's no big deal is a lie. I've got adults right now that are the same age as me that when we were in high school, they were smoking weed on a regular basis, and now they can't even put a sentence together. Don't be controlled by anything but the Holy Spirit. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen to this. Peter takes it a little, little further. He talks about the Gentiles. 1 Peter 4, and what he's doing is he's drawing a contrast between those who are following Christ and those who are not. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So Peter says that as followers of Christ, we, we do not have a desire for these things. We're going to stay away from these things. And therefore, those who are look at us like, what's wrong with you? And it says here that they begin to malign those who no longer participate. Verse 5. But they, in other words, those who are given to drunkenness, drinking parties, passions, drunkenness, all these things. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Go back to Genesis 9. Peter says, make sure you understand that this is not just about alcohol. It's about your character. It's about your integrity. It's about how you're living. It's about whether you're honoring God or you're dishonoring him. Now go back to, to chapter 9. Now let's look further at what happens here. So Noah, Noah makes this choice. This drunkenness leads to a horrible, horrible decision. And in our culture, we may not get the full weight of it, so we want to do that this morning. So he lay uncovered in his tent. Noah, an honorable man, is now dishonoring himself because of the consumption of alcohol. Notice how his kids respond. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. So Ham, instead of honoring his dad, instead, instead of taking steps necessary to protect the honor of his father, look, regardless of the choice he made, regardless of how he got to this place, the response of the kids should be to protect the honor of their father, whether they agree or disagree. To honor him by covering him and, and not letting him be a spectacle to everyone else. But notice what Ham does. Ham's first response is to make a joke out of it. He, he goes out and gossips and tells his two brothers, not so they can do something about it, but to make light of it, to gossip about it, to dishonor his dad, to further dishonor his dad by not doing anything to fix the problem. One of the things that I realized years ago that not only did I have this issue with my grandfather being out, I had other family members who were alcoholics. 
And I've, saw, I've seen my mom and dad multiple times go and, and, and help people who are in an absolute drunken stupor trying to get them sobered up. It was on my mom's side of the family as well. And I, I would see them at my home come, about, come to our house and get, be completely wasted. And I'd see my dad, you know, respond pretty firmly, and I'd, I'd see them try to help these people to try to get them sobered up. And I've seen the absolute foolish behavior of these folks. And here's Noah, who's now laid out for all to see, and now even worse, his, Ham, his son Ham's making fun of it. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. You see, I think the whole point of this narrative is this contrast between how Ham responds versus Shem and Japheth. Shem and Japheth, their first thought when they're made aware of what's going on is to make sure first we take care of dad. So what do they do? They put some kind of blanket, some kind of covering. They put it over their shoulders side by side. They keep it up high enough where they cover their face. They walk in backwards, and when they get to the edge of the bed where, where Noah's laying, they throw it on him, and they walk out and never, ever look at their father. Now look at the contrast between how Ham and Shem and Japheth handle this situation. Ham's first response is to gossip about it. Shem and Japheth's first response is let's protect our father from himself. Let's honor our dad, even though this decision was foolish, it's shameful, it's put us all in an awkward position. Notice how the first thing that these two sons think of is protecting their dad. So Noah eventually sobers up. Verse 24. So when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, I do not know how he first found out. I don't know. It doesn't tell us how it is that, that Noah found out about this. I, I don't know if, if Ham talked to other people. In other words, Noah has now become the laughingstock of the community. If, if one of the other sons told Noah what had happened, there are commentators who, who conjure up all kinds of ideas of what actually happened when, when Ham entered the room. I'm not going to get into those this morning. But there are some commentators who say there were serious improprieties that happened um, and that Noah was aware of that. I don't find that in the text. I don't think it's necessary for the text to go, for us to take the text in that direction. I think what we have in front of us, the plain reading of the text, is all we need, and that is two sons honored him, one son did not. And now listen, as Noah awakes and is aware of what happened, he says, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. There have been three curses in the Bible up to this point in Genesis. The first curse was upon the serpent at the fall. The second curse was upon the line of Cain. And now that whole line, that whole lineage was gone in the flood. And now we have the third one. And this curse is in response to what Ham did, but... This begs a huge question here, does it not? Canaan is the son of Ham. Why does, why does Noah curse Canaan rather than, than Ham? That seems rather unfair. And not only that, there, there's a whole nother 
issue with this particular text that I want to deal with first. Because this lie has been perpetuated down through history for years. And if, and if I can, at least for, for you guys and, and the ones watching online, I, I would love to take a knife and stick it right through the heart of this lie. Here's, here's where the lie goes. The lie that had been perpetuated, especially in early a pre-Civil War era of our country, what the idea was, and there were theologians, even preachers, who were preaching this concept that, that the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Canaan, are all dark-skinned people. And as a result, all the folks who are descendants of Ham and descendants of Canaan who are dark-skinned African-American, or that's in our culture, but black-skinned, dark-skinned, they are all automatically cursed and by the words of Noah from the word of God that, that they are now cursed and that they are to serve out their life as slaves to another race. You might have heard this. Some of you may be hearing this for the very first time today. But let me tell you, all, all down through my life in the church, I've heard this come up multiple times from people inside the church who would say about a black person that, well, they're, they're meant to be enslaved because of the curse of Ham. I want to tell you clearly as I can this morning, that is a lie right out of the pit of hell, and it doesn't even fit the text, which drives me insane when I hear this stuff. So I'm, I'm giving you this morning this, these facts so that when you hear this mess, you can finally put a stop to this because there are commentaries that still have this garbage in it. And it's a lie. It's not true at all. Here's why it's not true. Number one, here's the reason it's not true. The descendants of Canaan included a whole lot of people, not just dark-skinned people, and it included the Egyptians. The Egyptians are the descendants of Canaan and Ham. Now, wait a minute. Do we know anything about the Egyptians? Were they enslaved or did they enslave somebody? They enslaved the Israelites for 400-plus years. Not only that, and this is, the, this is the big issue here, is that the curse that is described in Genesis 9 was completely fulfilled in the Old Testament when the Israelite people make their way across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. You remember Canaan, the land of Canaan? Guess where it got its name, the people who dwelt there. Who were the people who dwelt there? The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites. Guess who they are? They are the descendants of Canaan. And not only that, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are the descendants. You can see this in Genesis chapter 10. They are the descendants of Canaan and Ham. Now, why is that important? Because when the Israelite people under the leadership of Joshua, you can see this in Joshua 9, 17, and also in Joshua chapter 17. When they cross over the Jordan, they begin to expel the people out of the land. You will find that the people of Israel, who are the descendants of Shem, Bring the Canaanite peoples who were left. Now, they were to drive them out, but the ones who they didn't drive out, they became servants to the nation of Israel. It says they were woodcutters and that they delivered water for the nation of Israel. So, in other words, the curse of Ham, the curse of Canaan, is found fulfilled in Joshua chapter 7, or chapter 9 and chapter 17. 
The point being, this has nothing to do with the slavery that our country was involved in. It has nothing to do with the curse of Ham as far as one people being subjugated. That group of people that I've heard other people say are to be subjugated, those people bear the image of God. They are valuable to God. They are not to be subjugated to anyone based off of a curse in Genesis chapter 9. So if you hear that, please correct it because I've heard it for over 20 years. And even when I was studying for this, I found it yet again. This is not the curse upon dark-skinned people to enslave them, even though that was what was argued by many people. So why Canaan instead of Ham? Why Canaan instead of Ham? That's, I wrestled with that. Why, why, would, why would Ham not be cursed because he's the one who dishonored his father. I'm going to give you four options, the four best options I can find, and I'm going to tell you which one I think is the best one. The first one, the first option, there are places in the Old Testament where when a name is used and it refers to maybe a son, oftentimes that name can also be used to refer to the father, the same name. So in this aspect, when, when Noah says something to Canaan, he's actually meaning the son of Ham. So the idea is he's not really actually talking to Canaan. He's talking to Ham, and Ham is ultimately the one that gets cursed. The problem with that is it's not in the text. The text is very clear. The curse goes towards Canaan. So I don't think that option works. The next option is this. Well, Canaan was old enough and was involved in dishonoring Noah, that, that Canaan was with Ham when they went into the tent. They both were involved in making fun of, of Noah. They were both involved with the gossip. Again, the problem there is, is we don't have it in the text. We don't see it in the text. All we know is that Ham was the one who dishonored his father. Third option, Noah refused to curse Ham because God had blessed Ham at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God had blessed the family of Noah as they exited the, the ark. And so, so, there, so therefore, Noah would not pronounce a curse over a person that God had blessed. That has some possibility to it. I think that, that might be an option. But I think this fourth option is the best. You may have not thought about it this way. Noah was acting almost as though he was a prophet. Now, the reason we have the word Canaan repeated several times in the text is because I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses wants us to make the connection between Genesis 9 and what happens when they take the promised land. What happens at Sodom and Gomorrah? What happens when, when we learn about the Canaanites and all that they were capable of? The Canaanite peoples, the descendants of Ham and Canaan, they were an evil people, evil to the core. Uh, we have indication that in First and Second Kings, that they were sacrificing their own children to false gods. We, we have the incident in Solomon Gomorrah. As a matter of fact, on your, own time, on your own time, I would encourage you to read Leviticus 18. I'm not going to read it this morning because it is graphic. Leviticus 18 is the law of God given to the nation of Israel. And what he does in Leviticus 18 is he says, here are the Canaanite peoples. Do not be like the Canaanites. And, and, and in Leviticus 18, God provides all of these laws, and when you see those laws, you realize that that's exactly what the Canaanite peoples were doing. And I want you to know that any kind of debauchery you can come up with, if you read Leviticus 18, it'll make you blush as to what was actually happening. So why did, why did Noah 
curse Canaan because I think Noah had a little bit of revelation, almost as though he was a, a prophet speaking not only to Canaan, but speaking to the line of Canaan, seeing where this was all going to lead, seeing that Canaan was going to be an enemy of Israel, seeing that there was going to be animosity, sin, and evil. So when he pronounces that curse, it's as though he can look forward in time and see exactly where this is going to go. But Ham did not get off the hook. Ham's going to have to live with the realization that his entire lineage is now under a curse for the actions of, of, the, of the actions that he chose to do. Ham is going to be punished knowing that his lineage is going to be subservient to the descendants of his brother Shem, all because of the choices that he made. Ham realizes that he's not going to be able to pass a blessing along to the son that is now cursed. So make no mistake about it, Ham certainly was punished. But I think the reason that Canaan is the focus is because Noah and Moses and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that this all has effect down the line. That the choice that Noah makes right here is going to have impact when the nation of Israel goes across the Jordan River and begins to take the land. So what we need to understand this morning Parents, what we need to understand, parents, is that the choices you make can directly or indirectly affect your kids and their kids. Isn't that incredible? The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, the law talks about to the fourth generation. It's incredible how that you can hear a family story, you can hear their history and find out that the same mistakes that were made in the great-grandfather, were made in the grandfather and the son, and, and all of a sudden now it's affecting your house. The same exact things, this cycle. And, and just like in my family, what broke that cycle, what broke that cycle both for my grandfather, for my dad, and eventually me, what broke that cycle was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what set my grandfather free. It's what led my dad to raise me in a home where alcohol was never going to be part of the equation. And even when I chose to go down that path, the Lord pulled me back and said, you're being foolish. You need to make things right with me. And I did. Parents, I know you're not perfect. I'm not either. But the fact of the matter is, the choices you're making, the words you're using, the actions you're living out, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone in your home, and it can even affect the next. You're, you're, you're teaching things even when you're not intentionally. Te you're teaching them. You're training them even when you're not intentionally training them, and they're watching you. And, and so if they want to learn patterns in your life, then it's easy for those patterns to be relived out when they have a family themselves. Kids, I'm not going to let you off the hook this morning. I'm glad you're in the service today. That way you can hear this from me directly. Kids, honor your parents. What does that mean? What does it mean to honor your parents? It means to respect them. It means to, to show them honor. And look, I get it. It may be that, that your situation, your parents are not the greatest in the world. I get it. You still don't get a, a pass from showing them respect and honor. Kids, be honest. We have a, not only do we have an epidemic of uh, substance abuse, and we have an epidemic of 
of uh, depression and anxiety, but folks, we have an epidemic of dishonesty. The lying comes way too easy. And kids, let me tell you something. In that moment when your parents catch you and whatever it is, you're a whole lot better to just go ahead and own it right then because more than likely they already know the truth anyway. Just go ahead and own it. Take, take, the, take the punishment, whatever it is, just go ahead and own it. But lying, just like alcohol, takes you deeper and deeper and deeper. Listen to what your parents have to say. They may not always be right, but they want what's best for you. I'm not presenting that your parents are perfect. You know they're not. But here's the thing. They've got some wisdom you don't have. They've got some experience you don't have. And so when they put these barriers in your life, there's a reason for that. They're trying to protect you from yourself. Trust them enough. Didn't say you had to like it. You know, parents, kids, you, you got to understand, your parents don't have to be your best friend. Matter of fact, it's entirely normal for your parents not to be your best friend for most of your life. And that's okay. What they are is an authority in your life, and they're setting boundaries. And the reason they're setting those boundaries is because they know what's on the other side of those boundaries. Teenagers, let me have your ear for just a moment. Students, listen, your culture's telling you the music you're listening to, uh, the thing you're streaming on iHeartRadio and wherever else you're, in those songs you are hearing that your parents are idiots. That your parents don't get you. Look, it was the same for my generation. The, same, the music I listened to was telling me the same thing. Students, let me tell you, your parents get you far more than you give them credit for. Because get this, as hard as it is to imagine, they were teenagers once. And for some of you, a very, 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 very long time ago. But nonetheless, <laughs> they were teenagers once. They know what it's like to be a teenager. They know, listen, they remember well the mistakes they made as teenagers. So it very well, may, very well may be that some of the hard barriers they've put up are there because of choices they made when they were teenagers, mistakes they made. They don't want you to do the same. So students, let me hear you. Let me just tell you that you need to honor them by listening to their wisdom. Teenagers, you need to talk to your parents. Okay, let me define that. I didn't think I'd have to define this, but I'm going to define it for you. Talking to your parents is something more. Let me give you an example. Hey, how did your day at school go? Huh? We left grunting a long time ago in our past. When your parent is asking you how your day went, they're actually wanting to engage you in conversation. So here, here's something. Try this. Let's actually talk about our day. Hey, I had this test today. I don't think I did that well. Hey, I have this teacher, man, she was off the chain today, got on my nerve. Tell them. It's okay. But a little bit more than a grunt would be helpful, right? That's honoring your parents. Respect the boundaries they've set for you. You don't have to like them. Matter of fact, I don't care if you like them or not. <laughs> I don't care. This is a boundary. Now, as you get older and you, you grow up and you... You're showing that you're trustworthy. Guess what? The boundaries can be expanded out a little bit, and you get to make some choices on your own boundaries. But that comes with time. Because remember, parents, we're raising adults. We're not raising kids. We're raising adults. There's a difference. We're not unleashing kids and adult bodies on the society. Lord knows we got enough of those. We're raising adults. So at some point, we're going to have to trust them with the choices because we've ingrained in them 
how to do that. Young adults, let me talk to you just a moment. We'll close. Young adults, you 20-somethings, um, let, me, let me admit something to you that maybe your parents haven't said to you, but I'm going to admit it to you. 20-somethings, maybe even 30-somethings, maybe you're married, maybe you're out of college, maybe you're in college. Let me, let me express something to you your parents haven't told you or maybe they have. Uh, us as parents, we're learning how to parent you as an adult. And sometimes we don't get that right. Because sometimes as parents, we still see you. We see you in a 21, 22, 25-year-old body, but in our mind we're seeing you with pigtails. We're seeing you out there on the little league mound for the first time hitting the tee ball. And so us as parents, we're trying to figure out how do we parent adults? What does that even look like? And it's definitely going to look different than when I was parenting you when you were 12 and when you were 2. And see, now I have to, I have to say, look, as parents, we've, we've got to make you, let you make some choices. And young adults, what I'm asking you to do is, is to be patient with your parents as they're learning this too, okay? But young adults, what I need you to do, what I need you to do is to go seek the counsel of your parents. You need to do that because here's an amazing thing. When you get into your 20s, all of a sudden there's like this moment, this like brain explosion where you realize my parents aren't as dumb as I thought they were. Wow, they have a lot of wisdom. Well, get this. Your parents are kind of on the sidelines. They want to help. They want to invest, but they're trying to figure out that space between you and them to let you live your life. But they are more than ready to give you wisdom. And what I need you to do, young adults, whether you're in your 20s or 30s, maybe you just got married, maybe you're thinking about kids, maybe you're thinking about a college career, you need to come back to those parents and let's have a talk about where I am in life because your parents desperately want to have that conversation with you. They're just struggling on how to do it. You got some big life decisions you're making right now. You need wisdom to help guide you on that path. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you go to Google when you've got parents who've been there, done that, made the mistakes and learned from them, and they would love to invest that in you. Parents, hear me when I tell you this. Uh, when I said that parenting looks different in those young adults than it does in the kids, make sure it sounds different as well. If you come at them like they're 12 and they're 30, how's that going to work for you? Man, this whole parenting thing, this whole, this whole parenting thing is hard. This family thing is hard. It's, it's hard, and it's been hard ever since the fall, and it's going to continue to be hard. But kids, what I need you to do, regardless of your age, even if you're 50 or 60, you still have your parents. You still are to honor them. And kids, what I need you to do is be honest with your parents. Talk with them. Learn from them. And avoid some of the mistakes that we've made. That's, that's what we want for you. We want, we want you to avoid some of those pitfalls. And the best we can do, the best parenting we can do, there's still going to be pitfalls. That's just the broken world we live in. But if I've made some mistakes and I can help you not step on that landmine, please let me do that. So parents, be an example worth following. Kids, look at that example and follow it. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media.
Facebook and Instagram.